Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this week's episode, we sit down with Justin Drake from the Ethereum Foundation to talk about randomness, how it's used in blockchain, what a random beacon is, and more. Today, we're going to talk about randomness, and hopefully it's a one-on-one episode that sort of stays within the educational bounds and we can be useful here. Um, before we kick off, hello, Anna. Hello. We have Justin Drake with us, which uh, actually is on the episode by uh, People's Choice Award. Uh, we made a call out on our Telegram channel and asked who the best person to talk about randomness is. And uh, everyone voted for you, Justin. Congratulations. Oh, wow. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Maybe you can just uh, introduce yourself uh, quickly, Justin. Sure. So uh, I'm Justin Drake, uh, and I'm a researcher at the Ethereum Foundation. And I'm mostly uh, helping out with the Ethereum 2.0 uh, effort. And I've been with the Ethereum Foundation for about a year and a half now. When you're when you say you're working on ETH 2.0, like why did your name come up for randomness? Like when we said who's the expert on randomness, why did your name come up? Uh huh. So, I mean, I I look at all aspects of Ethereum 2.0, and at one point in time, I ran down the the randomness rabbit hole, um, trying to find effectively the the best solution for Ethereum 2.0, and um, it turns out that one of the solutions that we looked into is so-called VDFs, verifiable delay functions. And that is a whole story with a lot of moving parts. Uh, but it's, it's one of the uh, you know, research efforts that, that I'm leading at the Ethereum Foundation. And the idea of VDFs is to try and make uh, a randomness beacon, which has all the properties that we want for Ethereum 2.0. We want to structure this episode as a blockchain 101 episode on randomness. And I think that through the conversation, we will probably get a chance to touch on the work that you're doing, Justin. But to start off, I want to define randomness. And the reason I want to do this is that there is some confusion about the term. Here are the standard definitions. Randomness is the lack of purpose, logic, or objectivity of an event. It's a type of circumstance or event that is described by a probabilistic distribution. Randomness has also been defined as having the property that all possible outcomes are equally likely. So to illustrate that last point, let's take the number pi. So pi actually is a series of seemingly random numbers. Pi definitely has that last property where all possible outcomes are equal. So say you're looking for a specific three-digit pattern series, um, it's no more likely that you would find the series 528 than it would be that you find the series 476. There's no pattern. So this is great, but it wouldn't necessarily satisfy the definition of randomness for cryptographic purposes. In the case of cryptography, one needs a form of randomness with a very specific quality. That is that the random number is both unpredictable and kept secret. 
With cryptography, one is looking for an asymmetry of information. You want to be able to perform some secure operation without an adversary being able to replicate it or derive the same results. Going back to the example of pi, the result of the calculation of pi has no discernible pattern. The actual number pi is very random. The sequence of numbers appears with equal frequency. Therefore, all number combos are equally likely. Um, and so you could call this random. But given that the method for generating this number is known and therefore predictable, this would not satisfy the requirements of a cryptographic randomness. So how do you add this unpredictability that you so need? Well, this is a cool feature about randomness. If you take a random number and mix it with another number, random or not, it will have the same level of unpredictability as the most unpredictable of the two. So when you think of a computer generating randomness, what it will often do is look to some outside real world source to generate a random number and potentially combine that then with um, other numbers. The source of this could be temperature or the timing of some real-world thing. For example, uh, Cloudflare published a really great article about randomness and how they generate it. They actually have a wall of lava lamps in their office, and they use a video recording of the lava lamps, which would be fully unpredictable, <laughs> to generate randomness. So particular pixels on the screen, and depending on the color that they take, this could then be used as a source of real-world real randomness. Cool. So with this, I think we can now jump into how randomness can be used in blockchain. Yeah, so I think randomness in blockchain is an interesting topic that is um, related to cryptography, obviously, but also somewhat separate. Like, I think the first time anyone interacts with sort of randomness in a blockchain context is, at least in the Ethereum world, if you're trying to write a smart contract that does something like a lottery. And they go, okay, how do I randomly choose a winner out of this set of people who are participating in the, in the lottery? And the first answer that they will think of is I'll use the hash of the last block because that looks like a random number. And there's actually some problems with this. And we've covered it slightly on the podcast before, but not really dived into it. So maybe Justin, you can talk a little bit about what kinds of like randomness do we have in, in like say Ethereum today and what's the problem with that? Why is it not enough? Yeah, so I think going back to definitions, uh, randomness for me is an unpredictable source of entropy. And one of the, the big challenges in the blockchain space is that we want to do it in a decentralized fashion. I mean, there's other properties that we care about other than unpredictability. For example, we don't want the, the randomness or the source of entropy to be uh, manipulable. Um, and we want kind of a, a steady st stream of it. We don't want it to suddenly stop. In the case of Ethereum 1.0, the, the randomness that we get from the block hashes is actually uh, falls under a very large class of randomness beacons, which I would categorize as commit reveal. And this is actually very, it's somewhat similar to um, the way that computers derive randomness by sampling from the environment. So the idea is that um, some external actor to the blockchain will commit somehow, and then they have uh, the choice to reveal that local entropy, which is external to the blockchain, and put it on chain. So in the case of proof of uh, work, you can kind of think of 
the commitment phase as being burning a lot of electricity to generate a block. And then once you have generated a block, the block hash will look random. It will be a good local source of randomness, um, which is derived kind of externally to the blockchain. And now the miner has the incentive to publish this block and include it on-chain and basically include this uh, randomness uh, for, for, for everyone. The main problem with proof-of-work and, and all the other commit reveal schemes is that the, uh, the miner or whatever external actor it is, it could be a validator, for example, in proof-of-stake, has the option to not include that local entropy on-chain. And so by doing so, they basically have the option to discard a random number that they don't like. They just don't tell the world about it. And as such, we say that they have the ability to manipulate the source of randomness. So even though the, the block hashes look totally unpredictable and they, they satisfy the decentralized property, and they also satisfy the liveness property, which is that you will have a constant stream of blocks they don't satisfy the uh, unmanipulability property. Going back to the lottery example here, that would mean essentially that you know the miner can participate in the lottery and then start mining a block, and then he keeps churning out new hashes and and like until he finds a proof of work that allows him to publish that block. If he doesn't win the lottery in that block, he can either keep mining and let's just add another transaction and then keep mining until he finds a block where, where he does actually win. Or he can, you know, say, you know, someone else won, I'm just going to throw this one away and then keep, keep doing that. So you can sort of keep churning to try to gain an advantage in winning. And depending on how large of a mining portion this guy has, uh, he may or may not be more or less likely to to win. He can actually affect the outcome of the lottery on average. A lottery is one example, but what other uses of on-chain randomness do you see there is? So the, the use cases of generating randomness on-chain kind of fall in, in two buckets. Bucket number one is just using the randomness for you know, consensus layer uh, use cases. And the second bucket is for application layer stuff. So the lottery, for example, would be at the application layer. In terms of uh, the consensus layer, it's very simple. It's simply randomly sampling consensus participants to do certain tasks. So if you take Bitcoin or Ethereum 1.0, the main task that needs to be done is block proposing. So extending the blockchain with a new block. And we want that process to be uh, random and fair. But you can have more sophisticated reasons to use randomness at the consensus layer. For example, if instead of sampling a single kind of monopolistic actor for a short period of time, you can sample a whole committee. And so in Ethereum 2.0, for example, we have the notion of a, a crosslink committee or uh, attestation committees. In this case, though, is randomness, randomness is used to make choices, sort of, of like which actors get included? Is that sort of the way it's being used in that case? When you say a committee, I'm just curious what that means. Yeah, so the idea of committees is that you have a pool of participants and you have a so-called honesty assumption. So you assume that some fraction of these participants will be honest. And generally, the property is that this pool of participants can be very large because if you're working in a, 
open decentralized blockchain, anyone can just come in and become a consist, uh, consensus participant. So generally, it's not practical for everyone to participate at the same time. One technique that is used quite commonly in proof-of-stake systems is that you will have a notion of a statistically representative committee. So mm. if, you take a, if you take a committee which is large enough, let's say a thousand validators, then it will be um, very representative of the global uh, pool of but if you took a small, like, that doesn't completely define where randomness comes in. Like, the way I've understood it is you'd have a larger pool and in the sampling process, it's almost like random numbers are picked. I mean, either you do it in some pattern, like we pick the first 100, then the second 100 in a predictable way. But if you want wanted to actually sample, you need some source of randomness to pick out random participants from this set. And I guess the reason that you would do that is by adding this randomness, it cannot be gamed. You can't figure out who will be chosen for that committee and then put your friends in that space. I know it's not friends in this case, but like... Yeah, but exactly. I mean, if you had a thousand validators and you knew it was a hundred, then the next hundred, you could set yourself up because there's no like built-in civil resistance necessarily. You could set yourself up with a hundred validators, set them all in a row. And then you know that by this block, I will have total control of the production. And so this is for, we've just been talking about like the POS use of randomness. But going back to what you had said originally about proof of work, like is proof of work a random generator? Is that basically what, it, what role it takes there? Yes, exactly. And it's an extremely expensive um, r- random uh, number generator. You can think of that. Uh, Basically, it's a way to take a pool of participants, in this case the miners, and fairly sampling them one at a time. Um, And not only is it extremely expensive, you know, it it could burn, let's say, $1 billion per year, um, it's also not perfect, it's manipulable. And so it turns out that we can build randomness beacons which are much, much cheaper, you know, they might burn on the order of $1 million per year, so a thousand times cheaper, and also have better properties. They are unmanipulable. So I, yeah, going back to proof of work and and this switch to proof of stake, uh, one of my questions was, so we have this randomness generation in, in proof of work, we know it's manipulable, so what is a better solution? You just mentioned the random beacon, but really what's the better way of generating randomness in this case when in that switch to proof of stake what changes what what capabilities do we gain so in proof of stake we have three options the first option is to go with the commit reveal family of randomness beacons and that's in a way replicating the the proof of work whereby you have participants who commit um, to local entropy and then they have the option to reveal or not reveal and all these systems have a, a so-called last revealer attack, which is when you're invited to, to, to reveal, and after your reveal, that's going to be the random number that is used by whatever application, then you have the option to reveal, not reveal, and hence you can uh, manipulate the, the randomness. So there's two other classes of randomness beacons which don't suffer from the manipulation of attackers. Um, number one is a class around threshold cryptography. And 
probably the most well-known system here is uh, Definity's Threshold Relay. And the other approach, which doesn't suffer from the manipulation, is basically taking a commit reveal scheme and adding a third step, which I call an extraction scheme. So it becomes commit, reveal, extract. With this final extraction scheme, you basically prevent uh, attackers from being able to make in informed decisions about the, the reveal or the, not, or the non-reveal, and hence not being able to manipulate the randomness. You've just mentioned a few different sort of mechanisms for creating this, but what is the input? What's the, like, where, where's the original randomness coming into this? And where does it come from? So in, in, in all cases, the original randomness comes from the external consensus participants. So, you know, they will generate randomness um, in the traditional way using their computer. And so long as the honest players um, do that, basically choose a, what looks to them like a, a random number, um, then with the honesty assumptions, you can have uh, what looks random to everyone uh, on the blockchain by going through the protocols. Basically, in like a commit reveal scheme, it's up to each participant what they're committing. I mean, they're they're basically saying, you know, here's a random value, trust me that it's random. And uh, you just have to trust them. And what their the source of entropy is can be up to each participant. So usually it might be Seaspring or something running on their computer, sampling times probably from their CPU. You know, I, I, there, it's sort of funny, like people can get crazy about this. You mentioned the lava lamp situation in Cloudflare, which is a funny one, but there's an actual like device you can buy and plug into your computer that's like a Geiger counter sampling the background radiation of the universe. And that's like the best, probably the best source of randomness that you can get. But um, yeah, in the commit reveal scheme, I think it's pretty obvious. But to me, it's not at all clear, like in a threshold cryptography scenario, what is the source of entropy? Because there's some message that's sent out and then everyone just kind of signs off on that and then you know, the threshold is passed and some some signature gets forwarded onward, which is used as the, the random number. But what is the input to all of this? So the input is still uh, random numbers generated on, on people's computer. I guess the difference is that um, there's so, uh, a so-called uh, secret sharing scheme whereby with these local pieces of randomness, you can generate a shared secret which is common to everyone, but which has the property that no one knows it. In order to rederive it, you need a certain threshold of participants to kind of collaborate and reconstruct it. So it's a way of basically having a secret which no one knows, it just exists, but it's um, unknowable. And it's split into tiny slices, and each slice is given to a different validator. So it's somewhat similar to, you know, threshold signatures. Sounds a lot like an MPC. Mm -hmm. It is an MPC, yes. <laughs> cool. um, so an MPC basically allows for every participant in the MPC to have a, a piece of secret. And then you want to uh, compute a function basically by preserving the, the randomness. And the, the function will be a, a mixing function which combines all the secrets. And it has a, another property, which is a threshold property, which is that you can recover the secret if some fraction, you know, for example, one half 
uh, we'll, we'll collaborate and reconstruct it. For listeners who haven't heard the episode we did on MPCs, MPCs are, it's short for multi-party computation. Um, and there's, we'll link to the episode on that if you want to hear a little bit about it. But um, like, as I understood it, the inputs are supposed to be random. You're using an MPC to make sure that even if there's like a small proportion of the people uh, or the participants who are malicious and potentially not giving real random numbers or having some coordinated number, um, even if they did that using an MPC, the system would still be secure. Yes. So it's actually not too much of a problem if you have a, a bunch of people who just pick, you know, pick zero, pick a, a totally non-random number. So long as you have one single person who picks a, a, a random number, then the, the, the shared secret will be random. The bigger problem with the threshold cryptography is that if you have a large enough attacker who can basically go above the threshold, then they can compute ahead of time all the random numbers. They can just go through you know, the reconstruction process and, and predict the future. The other problem with the threshold cryptography is that is a so-called liveness problem. So if you have so many people who are offline that you can't even reach the threshold, then you can't generate the next random number and, and your randomness beacon will stall. Just thinking before we dig deeper into the because we, we wanted to talk about the random beacon as like a separate entity. Here I'm I think I'm still trying to get to the I'm trying to basically the question I'm trying to come to is why do we hear about randomness using a block header as the input? <laughs> like that's sort of what I was talking about before with the using the the hash of the block. Okay. Of the previous block. That is, I mean, that, that is, is essentially the, the block, block header. header. Got it. <laughs> <I mean. laughs> but there's there's two ways to use the block headers. One is in the proof of work, and basically the block header will encapsulate the the, the proof of work kind of. Uh, result of the, the the puzzle you know the, the nonce and that nonce will have entropy and so the the overhaul um, block header block hash will have entropy but in a proof of stake system you know it's it's free to come up with tons and tons of block hashes because you don't have to do the work so you can just you know shuffle around the transactions and then you'll get different block hashes and so in proof of stake using the block hashes that's a completely broken solution I think that leads us pretty well into my next question, which is, what do we use randomness for in proof of stake? Like you say, it, it's not, you know, to create the next block hash. It, like it, it doesn't mark the same way as proof of work. So, what do we use it for? And and is there a way to bring the randomness, you know, from the consensus layer into the application layer as well? So in, in proof of stake, um, you use the, the randomness for the same purpose as proof of work, which is basically to select a random block proposer in a fair fashion. So by fairness, we mean that your probability of being selected is proportional to some sort of economic resource. And, you know, you can go beyond that. So there's the idea of sampling committees, basically trying to uh, sample the, the total set of uh, consensus participants, which generally we call validators, and only take a, a much smaller committee, which is representative of the uh, wider pool, and assign them a specific task. And this is how you get scalability with sharding, for example. So in the traditional model, you know, if you're in 
every node will go through all the blocks and have to process everything, which is unscalable. And in the Ethereum 2.0 uh, model, what we're going to do is we want to find a smart way of basically splitting up the total validator pool into so-called committees and assigning one committee per shard so that you don't have this wasteful redundancy and instead you're kind of cleverly spreading your security, well, spreading the, the validators across the shards. And the idea that is that if you have enough honest validators in the global pool, then this, this property will be preserved in the committees because the committees are meant to be statistically representative of the global pool. And in order to have this statistical representation, you need to have randomness. Um, and, and this is where the, the randomness beacon comes in. It's the seed to a so-called a so sh shuffling function, um, which will allow you to sample committees. So from what you've just said, as I understand it, randomness is used in POS for choosing the validator, building a committee, and potentially building a committee on the shards? Or did I misunderstand that? A committee of validators for each shard, yeah. Okay. Is there any other uses for randomness in proof-of-stake? So um, at the consensus layer, no, that's the main application. Just somehow sampling validators. And it could be just a single validator or it could be a, a whole committee of validators. Uh, but one thing that is totally possible is to expose the randomness that is generated at the consensus layer to the application layer. Okay. And then that application layer can use it for all sorts of things. So the most obvious application is um, you know, gambling and, and lotteries and, and games, but you can do other things. So one thing that you can do is that you can start building proof-of-stake systems on top of proof-of-stake systems. So for example, if you like Filecoin, and that's a, a nice idea of being able to have decentralized storage, um, and you want to recreate such a system on top of Ethereum 2.0, well, having an unbiasable source of randomness will be a, a, a huge help to, to, to do that. But it, it, it's also used uh, for, for, it could be used for other things at the application layer. So one kind of use case which fits in quite well with this podcast is in the context of stocks. So stocks are quite large uh, zero-knowledge proofs. And one of the reasons that they're large is because you have this so-called uh, fiat Shamir heuristic where you try and reduce uh, an interactive game, uh, which is like challenge response, to something non-interactive. And you kind of derive randomness from the interactions between the, the challenger and the responder. What this allows you to do as an attacker is basically try and simulate locally on your computer tons and tons of these interactions until you find one interaction which kind of breaks, which, which creates a, a proof which is wrong. And so in order to counterbalance this, you kind of have to increase various security parameters, and so you have larger stocks. If you don't rely on the fiat Shamir heuristic, and instead you, you have a zero-knowledge proof which is more interactive and kind of at each round, you resample fresh unbiasable randomness, then you're able to reduce the size of these stocks, you know, maybe reduce them by a factor of four, something like that. So then, yeah, the, the stock would essentially use that on-chain randomness generated by the beacon chain. 
Right. So someone who wants to uh, kind of prove a statement would get a challenge, uh, which depends on, on the randomness. And then the proof would kind of be broken down in time oh, in, in, in much smaller chunk where the aggregate communication is smaller than if they were to do it in one go in a non-interactive way. But because they're interacting with a blockchain, which is kind of this trustless entity, which doesn't really, uh, is, is not a traditional counterparty, you can still think of it as a, as a non-interactive zero-knowledge proof in a way. It just struck me that having proper on-chain randomness, and I mean, th this isn't necessarily tied to proof of work or stake or anything, but if you have a huge lottery on-chain and someone loses a ton of money, they're basically incentivized to fork the chain before that happened. <laughs> and, like they could put up, if it was a proof of stake system, they could put up a lot of stake previous to the the loss and then just continue there. But uh, it's interesting. <laughs> we should explain how this lottery thing works because we didn't really, I think we've mentioned it in previous episodes, but as I understand it, the idea here is that if you could predict what, like a block number coming up is, or if you see a block number before it happens or something, you could place the bet on that number happening and then make the money from it. Well, you could do that too. I mean, that's that's the simplest possible attack. Like a miner can place a transaction. Uh, they could front run the lottery basically by entering into the lottery in the same block that they're winning it. Yeah. Um, but that's like a, an incredibly dumb design of a lottery. And like if the, the smart contract author just shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> uh, so what do you, what do you mean then? What, what kind of attack is, is the lottery you describe? So basically uh, if they place a bet, then they, if the source of randomness is manipulable, they might not be able to directly say like, I'm definitely going to win here and place a bet. But over time, they are more likely to win than lose. So in a repeated game, they'll just keep losing, keep losing and winning. And then over time, they'll win more than they lose because they have some influence over the randomness. Right. So there's kind of two attacks on, on, on lotteries. One is where your, your, your source of randomness is manipulable because you're using, for example, a commit reveal scheme. You know, you really shouldn't be doing that because... Even an attacker with, you know, a, a tiny bit of influence, let's say 0.1 bit, only 10% of the time they'd be able to kind of re-roll the, the die. That's very, very bad because basically what that gives them is, a, is, an, is an edge. So if they have a 0.1 bit, then that gives them like a 5% edge if they participate an equal amount to what is currently in the pot. So if, there's, if you have a $1 million notary and they participate with another million dollars, well, normally they should uh, you know, win you know, half of the time, but instead they'll, they'll have an edge over everyone else. And so they'll be able to, to basically steal from, from the general public. The other attack that Frederick uh, mentioned is kind of interesting, which is, well, why didn't you fork the, 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 the blockchain? And indeed, if you have a, a blockchain where the economic value is just is much larger than the economic value backing the kind of the finality of the chain, then that could happen. I mean, so one of the things that you want to try and do is avoid soft finality. So um, you want to try and make sure that all the, all the bets kind of have been placed and some sort of 
initial seed has been uh, committed. And then after, after this kind of initial phase, there's a very strong finalization process. And then after that, you will try and deterministically extract the randomness from this seed which has been finalized at some point in the future in such a way that no one could, could have predicted what this uh, extracted random number is. And so there's basically two ways of doing it. Uh, one is uh, using the, the MPC approach where you basically have this secret sharing protocol where you, you split the secret. And then what you do is that you commit to the shares that have been split on chain. And then you have this finalization process, which has much more economic value at stake than the lottery. And then after the finalization process, you recombine the shares and then you get the random number. And then the other approach is basically whereby you have a so-called VDF, verifiable delay function. And the idea there is that using computation, using computation that is inherently sequential, you can have a function which basically takes an input and produces a unique output. So it's unique and deterministic. But the process of computing this function takes a minimum guaranteed amount of time. So let's say at least one hour. And so what you can do is you can commit to the input of that function, run through the finality process within an hour, and then go through this process of extracting the output of the VDF. You're guaranteed that anyone who tried to extract the output of the VDF will only be able to do it after the finalization process, and hence they cannot bias the input that happened pre-finalization. Let's get back to VRFs and VDFs uh, in a bit, because I'm, I want to sort of tease that a bit, talk about it a little bit, but I think we should do a whole episode on that. Uh, I think that, that those are super interesting topics. But right now, I wanted to get back a little bit to this idea of a beacon chain. So we've mentioned it a couple of times already. I think this is a term that has sort of evolved over time. And I'm not actually sure. I think in Ethereum, the beacon chain is sort of the same as the, in Ethereum 2, uh, the same as the, um, the kind of relay chain or whatever you want to call it. But I've seen designs before of like a beacon chain being a completely separate thing that its only purpose is to output random numbers it's just like a stream of random numbers that you can subscribe to over the network not really a blockchain at all so how do you think about beacon chain like what what's the definition to you and what's its purpose yeah so it's a bit of a you know accident of of research that happened so when i was studying randomness uh, as you say, I, I found all these so-called randomness beacons, which are you can think of as pure sources of randomness. And I wanted to try and extend that concept and have a chain whose you know, main purpose was to, to generate random numbers. And I, I, I coined the term beacon chain. And then people just started using the term for something other than what I intended. They started uh-huh. using it for not just the randomness, but also the the other stuff. Yeah. The, the reason is that you can't really have a pure randomness beacon in a decentralized context. You you need to have at 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 the, at the minimum some sort of registry of at least in the proof of stake concept, some sort of registry of who will be participating in the randomness beacon. 
So you need to have a mechanism to maintain that registry, and then you need to have you know a deposit mechanism so that you can register as a validator, and you need to have mechanism to exit. And then you know you might have rewards to incentivize participation in the randomness beacon, and then you start adding all these things, and at the end of the day, you start recreating what what I think would be a better term, a system chain. So it's basically the core shared infrastructure for all the shards, which provide various system services, and 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 those services are randomness, finality, maintenance of the set of validators, processing rewards and penalties, including slashing conditions, uh, and all of that stuff. So your your original idea was to try to have a random beacon that sort of sat alone? Yes. So initially, we were thinking of having a so-called sharding manager contract. So a lot of the heavy lifting at the system level was done in a contract within Ethereum 1.0. But you know, even though that worked great for things like uh, like deposits and maintaining a validator registry, it wasn't adequate for the purposes of of randomness. So I was thinking of basically building this external thing called the randomness beacon, whose main purpose was randomness. And then this whole thing snowballed, and then we eventually realized that we want to put nothing in in 1.0. We want to kind of start with a clean slate and and, and put all the system stuff in this external chain. And I think the term is somewhat unfortunate because it gets cryptographers really confused because they're mm-hmm. used to randomness beacons and, <laughs> and you know, they don't understand. But the, the general public is fine. You know, they just think of some sort of uh, lighthouse, you know, that points the way forward for the, the, the rest of the system. And, and that's perfectly fine. I'm still curious, though, like when you, so I understand sort of this random randomness beacon, I understand that it evolved, and now you've referred to the beacon chain, but is the beacon chain just ETH 2.0? Like where, does it live somewhere, or is it the entire thing is a beacon chain now? Now we kind of have three types of chains. So we have the kind of so-called legacy Ethereum 1.0 chain, which is what exists right now. And then we have this totally separate parallel universe, which is also a blockchain, uh, which is the beacon chain. And that's one of the components of the wider Ethereum 2.0 system. Hmm. And the wider Ethereum 2.0 system, in addition to the beacon chain, has shards, specifically 1,024 shards. And the shards, you can think of them as user uh, user level blockchains, like application level blockchains. So it has the user transactions, it has the user state, it has you know user land blocks, but the beacon chain is all about system stuff. So it has system transactions, system state, system blocks. And it it sounds like it goes way past randomness now. <laughs> yes, it basically does everything and anything that is relevant to support the shards. So you can kind of think of it a little bit like an operating system. So on on the, on your computer you have an operating system and then you have applications that are built on top of the operating system and the operating system will provide basic functionality so you can i don't know read from memory write to memory and you know one of the basic functionalities that is exposed by the operating system is randomness and so in uh, in a way we're just replicating this thing uh, in a decentralized context is that is that so? I I how is like going back to just the the more general de- definition of randomness in computing? I'm just curious if there's any examples you could give of 
how randomness actually exists in sort of the, the usual OS? So I, I think the, the usual OS would basically have some sort of API to various external sources in its environment. So it might read the, the temperature, it might look at the clock and, you know, go down to the nanosecond. It might read user input from the mouse or from the keyboard, or it might use uh, you know, random noise from the microphone. And then it will combine all these things into a very easy-to-use uh, API for the application layer. And you know, at the application layer, you use randomness all the time. So I know if you're doing some sort of simulation, then you would use randomness. I see. So this is like, but it's still like feeding a random number into something else that would use that randomness. I mean, the the operating system, well, it depends on which operating system you're talking about, but like the most operating systems uh, have some sort of built-in way to get randomness. Like a developer doesn't really need to care. They just call this random function Mm -hmm. and it gives them a random number. They don't know where it comes from. And it's the operating system level that does all the interacting with the hardware of like all the things that Justin were talking about too. That that's essentially like in your initial definition, you said like the computer reads from its environment. That's what it is. It's reading temperature clocks, uh, noise in general in the system uh, to try to generate a random number. So that's so. I mean, in the analogy, like um, the system chain, you know creates this randomness it is the source of this randomness and the the user level change they don't really need to care where it's coming from it's just you know, i have it. a random number right here i guess the, but the question i had a little bit was in the more traditional os is there any need for using the random like randomness itself in its in its processing in its sorry word maybe is wrong here processing is probably not right but it's like in its own operation, does it use randomness the way that the beacon chain would still be using its own randomness to define the validators? Mm-hmm. So you're asking, does the OS use its own randomness for various things? And yeah. almost certainly the answer is yes. And the reason is that when you think of it very abstractly in terms of uh, you know algorithms, then there's two classes of algorithms. There's like deterministic algorithms and then there's like randomized algorithms. And it turns out that the second one is strictly greater than the other one, like strictly more powerful. And so, you know, you might have a sorting algorithm, which is randomized, or you might have a caching algorithm, which is randomized. You know, you do random evictions or something like that. And it turns out that if you want to try and um, smooth things out or try and avoid having any particular bias which may come in with the deterministic algorithms, you can use um, randomness to, to have a, a superior algorithm that, for the job. So I want to go back actually to a thing that you mentioned. You, you were talking about these three ways of generating randomness in a sort of proof-of-stake environment. One is a typical commit reveal. The other one is threshold cryptography. And the, the last one you mentioned was commit re- reveal extract. This is actually something that's new to me, and I'm not exactly sure how that works. Uh, maybe you can explain that a little bit. Sure. So the idea is to take a commit reveal scheme, which is great on all properties except one, which is that it's manipulable, and try and upgrade it somehow by adding this, this extraction step to try and fix the manipulation aspect. The idea there is that 
you want to try and use a so-called VDF, verifiable delay function, to add a minimum guaranteed uh, amount of time to extract a number which looks random given any input. So you give it any input and it will take some amount of time, let's say one hour, and after one hour, you have a number which looks totally random. If you make sure that the reveal phase lasts less than the delay, so in our case, the reveal phase uh, lasts less than one hour, then any kind of bias that you want to try and introduce in the reveal phase by not revealing, well, that is not going to be meaningful in the sense that you will be uh, biasing the randomness in the blind. So you will affect what the final random number will be, but you won't be able to affect it in a meaningful way, in the sense that you won't be able to know if you're affecting it in a positive or negative way to you. It will, you'll, you'll just be resampling a, a new number. So you can kind of think of it maybe as uh, a big jar with you know, lots of uh, numbers that are kind of written on pieces of paper and the pieces of paper are, are folded and you kind of, you, you put your hand in and then you, you, you mix and then you say, okay, I'm going to pick this piece, of this, this number, but you don't open it and then you take it out and then you say, oh, actually, no, I've changed my mind. I'm going to pick another one. So you put the number back in and then you pick another one. So here you have changed the final outcome, but it was in the blind. So you have no way of actually meaningfully manipulating the final outcome. I wonder, does this have a little bit to do with the idea of like mixing random numbers? Like, are you combining, ra- are you combining a random number with another random number here? Yes. Yeah, as I've understood it, if you mix a sort of highly unpredictable number, random number, with a not quite a secure number, you... Uh, end up with the the resulting number will have a highly unpredictable value. So it will actually take the more random of the two and will have that um, quality. That's exactly right. Basically, if you combine a bunch of random numbers, it's not a weakest link uh, property. It's the strongest link property. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so that's why the commit reveal schemes, they kind of have this minority honesty assumption. You know, you just need one single person in the group of participants to be honest, and they will pick an unpredictable number. And so the combined mix will be totally unpredictable. And so the idea of commit reveal scheme is that you have this commit reveal phase, which generates this mix, which is unpredictable. And then you have this extraction phase on top of it to make it unmanipulable in addition to being unpredictable. So going back to the lottery example, I guess the commit reveal extract, everyone commits, you have the last guy. In in the normal model, he can say, if I commit my value to be this, the outcome will be that. He has the, the total privilege of seeing what the outcome of all of this will be and so can decide if he wants to put in his value or not. But if you feed all of this into a VDF and then the outcome of the lottery is decided before the outcome of the VDF, then basically he doesn't know until the outcome. So, you know, like you said, he doesn't know if he should commit his thing or not because he doesn't know what it is until this VDF is done. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So in the in the reveal phase, which is where the bias comes in, because I mean, one thing that maybe I should make explicit is that the commit reveal scheme only allows you to reveal the single number that you've committed to. You have no other option than either revealing what you've committed to or not revealing at all. So you have so-called so, so one bit of attack surface. When you are an attacker, and, and let's say you control some fraction of the participants in the commit reveal scheme, you'll have some, some, some amount of attack surface, but this, this amount of attack surface will be tiny relative to the unpredictable entropy which is added by the one single honest participant. And then this, this unpredictable entropy will overwhelm the extraction process. So it's basically impossible to, uh, to brute force the extraction process. You have to go through this slow computation phase. So we have these three models, commit reveal, commit reveal extract, and threshold. What's the attack model for these three? Like if I wanted to break the randomness and actually be able to decide what the random number is what do i have to do for um commit reveal you have a minority honesty assumption so you just need one single person to participate and you'll have this uh, key property which is unpredictability now um what happens is that there's kind of a spectrum for uh manipulation so if you have everyone is honest then you know no one will try and manipulate and the, you'll have a great random number but the more attackers you have so basically the lower your honesty assumption is the the greater the surface for for manipulation in in the threshold cryptography it's much more clear cut instead of having this gradient the spectrum it either works perfectly or is completely broken in the context of working perfectly basically you want to make sure that you have sufficiently many people who are honest and online at any given point in time. If you don't have this, this threshold, then there's two ways in which the randomness beacon fails in very dramatic ways. Way number one is you don't reach the threshold at all. And so that's a liveness issue, and you can't even generate the next random number. And that's you know, really problematic, for example, in the proof-of-stake system, because you need to decide who's going to be the next person to create a block. And if you don't have that, then your, beacon chain, your, your, your blockchain will stall. And that's, for example, what Definity has uh, right now. And, and there's no way to get out of this, right? Like you can't reshuffle anything because you, you don't have a random number to reshuffle. Like you, what do you do? Can you, do you just have to wait until enough people come online? So you have various options. You can you know, just uh, wait it out and see if uh, people come back online. Another option would be to just fork at the social layer. Uh, the blockchain and try and restart with some new parameters with a new set of validators. Another option is to try and have some sort of hybrid model where, you know, in the default case, you will use, you know, threshold cryptography, but your blockchain has stalled for a whole hour. You can try and have a fallback mechanism with, with commit reveal. Um, the problem with these fallback mechanisms is that suddenly they introduce manipulation. And the reason is that. What you can do is you can, if you're an attacker that's large enough, 
you you will have kind of sufficient votes to go above the threshold. But if you don't participate, you go below the threshold. And so you can privately know what the next random number is. And if you don't like it, then you just wait it out and trigger the fallback mechanism. And that will give you basically another chance at getting another random number. Yeah, so it doesn't just introduce um, manipulability of the fallback mechanism. Like if the fallback mechanism is commit real, then we have manipulability there. But also like at the higher level where you can choose if you want to fall back or not, (laughs) which is interesting. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And even forking out at the social layer, that's also a fallback mechanism and also uh, uh, a surface of manipulation. Is there any difference in the attack surface between the commit reveal and commit reveal extract? Or is it the same? So the commit reveal extract is kind of perfect in the sense that um, it's totally unpredictable, totally unmanipulable, and has strong liveness in the context of a minority honesty assumption. But it depends on VDFs, which is a complicated topic and we don't really know yet if it has its own attack vectors or not right i mean vdfs definitely have their own attack vectors uh, and there's a there's a bunch of standard assumptions that are made cryptographic assumptions but there's also new assumptions which relate to hardware uh, which can we can you know which are yeah, that that's the part i'm alluding to like if you design a vdf as an asic is your ASIC optimal or not? And that, that sort of introduces some some questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe we can, like, let's, we're at time. Mm-hmm. So we need to wrap up, unfortunately. Uh, but I want to, I want to do an episode in the future with you, Justin, on VRFs, VDFs, all these things. Maybe we can just give a quick teaser and primer, like what is a VDF high level? What is a VRF? And are they related or not? So VRF is actually easy, and we've we've kind of used them in the commit reveal scheme. So basically, you want to have a way of generating randomness locally and then presenting it to the blockchain in a verifiable fashion. And so one very easy way to do that is, you know, first you commit to a secret with a hash, and then you reveal the hash, and anyone can verify that the the secret that you revealed matches the the hash and you can use other functions so for example uh, one which we use in ethereum 2.0 is um, the idea of using uh, a bls signature so the commitment will be registering a public key and then the reveal will be a signature from that public key and so once you reveal a signature, anyone can verify that the signature matches the public key. So a, a PRF is nothing fancy. It's, you know, we use them all the time. What's much more kind of interesting and is the, the, the VDF because that's a, a new cryptographic primitive. And the idea there is to try and have a, um, in a totally trustless and decentralized fashion, have uh, a notion of minimum guaranteed delay. And by delay, I mean physical time delay. So you can, you have a guarantee that, you know, a whole hour has passed 
and not only has a whole hour passed, but also you have a mechanism of taking an input and producing an output at the end of this one hour where the output is, is unique and deterministic uh, and looks like a, a, a random number. And the way that these uh, VDFs are implemented um, in the real world is using hardware. So you have this notion of sequential computation where the, the, every step of the computation depends on the previous step. And so you can't parallelize things. You have to do them one after the other. And so there's no way of kind of cheating the system with, you know, data centers full of hardware. Um, and the, the new kind of exotic assumption that you have with the hardware is that uh, an attacker is not much faster, not too much faster than you are. So, for example, not more than 100 times faster than you are. And so the exciting thing that we're doing uh, at the FM Foundation in collaboration with all sorts of other blockchain projects is to try and build state-of-the-art uh, hardware that will do this sequential computation and have extremely high confidence that it's effectively impossible for an attacker to build equivalent hardware, which is 100 times faster than what we're going to build. Um, so listen, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Justin and helping us to explore randomness. Yeah, no worries. Uh, it was fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.